host Tim Powell from the Oil and Gas Council. Today we are joined by Chris Beato, CEO of Rocking WW Minerals, a private minerals and royalties company who is focused on the Powder River Basin. During the episode, Chris leverages his 35 plus years of experience in the industry to explain why companies need to go back to a produce out strategy in order to deliver consistent returns for their investors. Chris also talks about the misconception that investing in minerals is less risky than investing in EMP, and how you need to have a much more sophisticated approach to minerals investing given that you don't have control of development. Let's jump into the episode and hear what Chris has to say. Well, Chris, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. How's it going? It's going great. It's my pleasure to be here. I appreciate uh, you reaching out to us. Absolutely. So before we jump into the, the meat of the discussion, would love a little personal background if you can Talk about where you grew up, university, how you got in the industry, and just the evolution of your career. And we can paint a picture before talking about the mineral space. Sure, no problem. I'm a, I'm an oil field brat. My father worked for City Service. We ended up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I ended up, uh, you know, roughnecking in high school. Played football for Air Force Academy until I lost my poliqual due to some unsuccessful shoulder surgeries. Um, ended up playing lacrosse at Colorado School of Mines just up the road. You know, Mines was a great education, but Conica, where I first went to work, you know, was a game changer for me. Uh, they gave me all the opportunity in the world. That was back in the day when these majors actually had just staffs of experts that their sole job was to educate young engineers. And I, uh, I got to, to take advantage of that. So between 1986 and 1990, I think I probably went to 37 schools, Conoco schools. Conoco owned a ranch called the Purple Sage Ranch in South Texas, outside of, uh, in Bandera, Texas, just outside of there. And basically the sole purpose of the ranch was to educate engineers and geologists. Tremendous opportunity. Those things don't exist anymore. And, and then you toured the world, all sorts of different country units, right, with them. Um, yeah, I, um, I became a deep water pioneer when there were very few of us and uh, worked around the world doing that for Conoco. I was part of a group called PES, Production Engineering Services, and basically we were a special forces team based out of Houston, Texas, although none of us spent any time there. And they would literally parachute us into countries, teams of three and four people to go drill exploration wells. And so we, we just physically had to pull everything together as if we were this little tiny independent oil and gas company, you know, with a big logo on our business card. But that's all we had, you know, and it taught us skills that I don't think you could be taught anywhere else in the world when, you know, you're parachuted into a place and you don't even speak the same language, you know, <laughs> and you got wells drilled and made a lot of good friends and had a lot of laughs along the way. And then um, Baker Hughes, uh, as they were integrating all the different Baker service or sister companies together, Jim Woods, the CEO at the time, reached out to me and offered me a tremendous opportunity as managing director of Asia Pacific and the Middle East to kind of help him bring all this together in that half of the world. And at one point, we were running 18 rigs in 13 countries, you know, running entire oil and gas fields for national oil companies. So it was, it was just an enormous opportunity that I really took advantage of and just got a, just a, a very large breadth of experience very, very quickly. Oh, that's fantastic. And then, and then you, you came oh. back 
stateside when and, and when did you branch off on your own? And so Conoco, Baker Hughes, was there another big oil co in your resume after that? In 1997, I uh, took a very winding road back to the United States. I uh, started my first oil and gas company as Asian Tiger in 97, and we hit a couple 2,000 barrel a day discovery wells offshore Indonesia. Uh, we developed a big oil field in Ostrakhan, Russia with our partner, the Getty Trust. We were operating. I started a technology company called Drillmar uh, in 2000, and I was focused on a series of offshore rig concepts that I patented with uh, some technical partners of mine, Hausman Ittrek, which is an extremely successful company based out of uh, Delft Ski Dam in Holland. And uh, we ended up in Venezuela, believe it or not, with Petavesa as our partner in Lake Maracaibo. And we were getting ready to deliver three special purpose-built jackups, really innovative concepts that integrated continuous coil tubing drilling along with casing drilling. And we were in a production sharing contract there. But Chavez nationalized in 2001, December of 2001. And we decided at that point, uh, and we spooled it up in Venezuela and came back to Texas and started Ixaro. And that's 2005-ish, correct? Um, no, that was uh, right after, it was 2002. And so we started to put together our concepts for actually building a casing drilling land rig, which could also integrate coil tubing in it. Uh, we did that and rolled that out. Our first partner was Apache, where we redeveloped a big field with them in South Texas. And then uh, we had a whole series of partnerships after that, Anadarko and, and others. It was all based on some proprietary casing drilling technology that ourselves, Conoco and Tesco at the time, Bob Tassari, we were all pioneering together. A lot of fun. I, I will say yeah. this, incredibly different background to a lot of your peers in the mineral space, right? So thanks for, for painting that out. I, I'd love to circle back and touch upon some of that experience as we talk about how you're seeing the sector now in the mineral space. Because I think your tour around the world, your training in Conoco, all the different types of exposure you've had are contributing to your views on the world, right? So let's, you know, we, we talked offline. Let's kind of speed up to the shale revolution. And you, you said that when you came back from overseas, you were focusing on Texas and you had identified the shale potential in the Permian, but decided pretty early on that you didn't want to stick around and you went up uh, to Wyoming where you're focused on today. Can you explain why you did that? What realization you came to and some of the, the signals you saw that were a bit concerning, which are starting to play out now in a COVID-19 oil price war type era? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we recognized Oh, back in 2010, 11, 12, that shale held huge potential if you could put yourself in the right rock. And, you know, one of the, I think it was kind of a watershed paper that was written back in that era by Dr. John Wright from the Colorado School of Mines, one of my professors, actually. And um, John um, basically did a post audit on the Barnett Shale, you know, which started really being developed in 2005 and six. And, you know, he found that at $7 flat gas, only about 30% of the wells actually broke even. And really all the money was made in about 15% of the wells, which, you know, basically means that geology is a bell-shaped curve and it's going to stay a bell-shaped curve and it's not going to change. It doesn't matter if it's conventional rock or unconventional rock. 
you know, most of your money is all coming out of 15 to 20% of the rock. And so when we're looking at the shale potential and, and how you could play that, you know, we realized that there was going to be a lot more losers and winners because we really didn't understand how to define the rock very well at that time. Um, so when we looked at West Texas, you know, $94 oil price, stripper well production, you know, it was trading at $75,000 a flowing barrel. It just didn't make any sense to, with that high of a buy-in price to take that type of a risk on trying to define and understand a reservoir that very few people understood. And so instead, we focused on tight sandstones, which you could, even back then, really understand well, be able to model and be able to understand what a horizontal well was actually going to do. And um, Wyoming is the perfect place for that. And it, it, we got focused on it. And in 2012, we made our first investment in the Jonah field, and we put $600 million to work in the state since then. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. Some of the, the concerns you had looking at a lot of the play being uneconomic on the shale side, you know, that that's clearly with the oil price war driving oil down to sub 20 bucks. Uh, it went negative last week. You know, there, there's a lot of players who were very much on the edge of surviving that have, you know, they got pushed over very quickly, right? The I think Saudi Arabia won won the oil price war pretty quickly. There, there was a, there's going to be a lot of money lost. And you, you had kind of mentioned to me, unless there was this unrealistic market to exit, the, all the investments made in the early 2010s were never, were never going to be economic. And you actually said that unrealistic market kind of happened for a short period of time. So there were some firms that were able to exit. Now there's a lot of trap capital. We had an, an interview with Adam Watchers the other day. His number is 80% of PE backed companies out there are illiquid. They won't get bid on. You know, you can debate that number, but I think the general consensus when you and I spoke was that it's a high number, right? There are lessons learned or mistakes or patterns that played out in the upstream space for shale. And you know, you've told me, unfortunately, you think those same type of patterns and mistakes are unfolding in the mineral space. Can you, as, as we transition kind of talking about the minerals sector over this episode, can, can you make those comparisons and, and some of the, the things you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you look at pre-COVID-19, the mineral sector was really ramping up. You know, during 2014 and 15, that downturn, I think Wall Street and the private equity in general, you know, saw the mineral space as less risk since they viewed it as a non-cost-bearing investment where the intrinsic value of the minerals was real property and could not go to zero. They also viewed it as potentially the largest transfer of wealth from the private sector to the public sector um, that remained in the energy industry. You know, hence there was huge upside as public companies were formed to eventually gobble up private aggregators. What this money didn't understand is that they were 
just trading one set of risks for another. And arguably they were actually taking more risks because when you make a mineral investment, you know, you're not in control of the timing of the development and you're not in control. You actually don't have as much information as if you were an operator. So you may not actually be investing in good rock. You know, the bottom line is the same exact mistakes were made in this focus on the mineral sector since 14 and 15 that were made in the EMP sector before that and were still being made after that, um, where we were just as an industry as a whole investing in a lot of bad rock. It's like I said earlier, 15 to 20% of the rock makes sense. The rest of it doesn't. And there was a lot of management teams out there then and still today that actually don't know how to develop it. A lot of people have wonderful skills in the industry, don't get me wrong, but but the lack of skills or certain types of skills, you know, is really our Achilles heel. You know, the lack of experience in actually developing assets in a manner to cost efficiently produce them out. Much of the industry has been operating for the past 15 to 20 years, you know, with the operating under the buy, drill as little as possible and flip model. You know, we basically have generations of engineers and quite honestly, some management teams that only have these flipping skills. And as an industry, we've retired most of the folks that actually know how to manage a field from cradle to grave. The industry's continued misapplication of artificial lift and inefficient gathering systems, you know, in these new shale fields, you know, are both perfect examples that prove my point. To, to be more specific with an example, you know, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, land fields were developed just like offshore fields today, whereby from day one, we installed both high and low pressure gathering systems to cost efficiently develop a field and then downspace it without interrupting production from the wells that, you know, that have already produced off past their flush, you know, and, and are operating at a much lower pressure. You know, the shale industry just ignored these basic petroleum engineering 101 rules of thumb, blueprints, if you will, and therefore really we're creating an enormous amount of waste as a result. And I'm talking waste with respect to delayed production and, and a worst case scenario, significantly less EURs out of, out of these fields and drill spacing units. It's taking this big step back and trying to figure out how do we actually apply these petroleum engineering 101 blueprints in hindsight now to actually go back in and fully develop these fields. And, th and that's a real challenge that we're all going to face if you're going into now, 10 years ago it was a green field and now it's brown. The talent gap you reference is, is a real issue. I mean, forget the types of skills, just in general, um, there's there's a generational gap. You have people leaving the industry, going into other things like tech, and there's always the age-old question over the last decade is, how do we attract more talent back to oil and gas? How do we get them to stay? And if you kind of overlay what you're talking about, it's the ones that are in the industry aren't developing or haven't developed the skill sets needed going forward that were, were common ground back in the day. Uh, I, I think technology's got to play a part in that, right, Chris? I mean, leveraging the, the senior expertise that's left in the industry to, to start developing and, and modeling out that, that technology to, to do the right behaviors. That, that's right. And, and technology is going to play a huge role to make one operational expert, you know, a force multiplier by actually touching every single day more engineers or, or more field operators. You know, and the, and the key is it's these gray-haired wonders that are sitting out there that have 40 and 50 years experience in the field, per se, that can make a gathering system or an artificial lift system just sing. You know, we're retiring all of that. 
And if we don't transfer that knowledge over that's not written down in books, that you can't get out of a manual, if we don't, if we don't transfer that knowledge over, we're going to be in serious trouble as an industry. I found it really interesting how you guys approach the space. You had mentioned it, there's almost more risk because you're doing the same things and the same types of analysis that an EMP operator would, but you don't have control. There is no difference between an ENP company and a mineral company. You're dealing with exactly the same thing. How much oil and gas is in the ground and can you cost effectively get it out of the ground? You know, and if you can't answer all of those questions as if you were an operator, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be investing in minerals either. So you've taken it a step further outside of looking at the rock, outside of looking at the operators that are operating it and their development plans, you actually put together a technical team and pretend you're the operator and try to reverse engineer your own development plan so you can then forecast your acquisition strategy. You look at the investors behind the operating companies and their track record, their behavior, uh, and, and you're really doing all sorts of different layers of analysis that I, I think, I mean, I think that's smart, but it's also, it takes expertise, time, resources, money to be able to do that level of analysis and you know, as you speak to how your team has approached the space in that way, can you talk to the, how others, your peers aren't and, and or the capital in general making, quote unquote, the same mistakes? Can you spell out what those are outside of just a generalization of buying bad rock? Um, so, you know, maybe the first question you asked was, how, how did we get in the mineral space in the first place? You know, from an operator to a mineral buyer. And I guess that we've always viewed operators as mineral buyers. I mean, it's our goal to have as high net revenue interest as we possibly can. And that means that when you get into a play, whether it's from the very beginning as a greenfield or a brownfield, you want to aggregate a more attractive NRI. And you do that by buying minerals and overrides. I mean, it's the oil business from the beginning of time. Um, and it's why the oil business in the United States is as great as it is. It's not because of our Fed government. It's because of private ownership of minerals. That's the one differentiating aspect or characteristic of the U.S. oil business that nobody else has in the rest of the world. There's a little bit of it in Canada, but, but nothing meaningful, you know, and believe me, you know, I've, I've worked a lot of different places around the world and there's a lot of smart people out there. A lot of people that know how to get oil and gas out of the ground, but what they don't have is the ability to work in an environment where there's private ownership of minerals. So, so on the back of that, right? So that's been happening forever, but it's more in vogue now to have a dedicated mineral strategy. When did you guys make that transition? Uh, you know, you had mentioned that acquisitions in the upstream space, you were getting priced out and transitioning to buying minerals, there was more of an arbitrage there. In the summer of 18, we were starting up XRO5 and uh, my VP of land, Whitney Wicks, pitched the idea that, you know, we should really just start up a sister mineral company to hold overrides. And we were focused on Wyoming, a lot of fed lands, a lot of overrides. So let's, uh, let's start a mineral company and be able to put these overrides or royalty interest in this company and be able to do something different with them than just flip them with the oil and gas asset, maybe keep them long-term. And so our whole idea was, uh, hey, put five or six million bucks in the sister company and that uh, we'd buy right in front of our own drill bit. And as we were you know, looking at exactly what EMP investments we wanted to make back then. You know, we realized that even in Wyoming, from an operated position, the rock was overpriced, but minerals weren't. We felt it was still a reasonable buy in Wyoming and in the Rockies in general. And that wasn't a reasonable buy down in, in Texas. 
you know, and so we started looking at this business plan and decided that, you know what, there's going to be a correction on the horizon. This was the summer of 18. There's going to be a correction on the horizon. Whether it happens in 19 or 20, it's going to happen. But believe me, we never envisioned what actually did happen. But we thought, you know, 14 and 15 was going to relive itself because those companies were never fixed when they came out of bankruptcy back then. So we thought that everything was still overheated. It was going to, there was going to be a correction. We buy into to uh, ENP in an operated position at that time. And in the meantime, you know, we put the mineral company out front and let it, in effect, be our spearhead. And, you know, that's how Rocking WW was born and how we initially just focused on it and went to fund our entire business plan, which, which really integrated both the ENP and the mineral side together with the old switcheroo, the minerals being put out front. You know, uh, it took us about three weeks to raise our funding. Obviously, people in the market were waiting for somebody to have that perspective. Yeah, and, and it, it quickly, you had mentioned five or six million bucks. You, you quickly raised more money and, and have put more money than that to work since, right? Did you do a, a separate dedicated fundraise? No, we were, I, I mentioned the five or six million just because we really thought it was just a tag along trailing vehicle that helped us improve our net revenue interest and created some value on the side from a royalty perspective that could be kept once we flipped our EMP asset. You know, we went out and raised a big, big chunk of money um, and actually, you know, committed to put $100 million of that just in the minerals, just into the PRP. And let's take a step aside or, or a pause for a moment on kind of industry trends and talking about the current environment today and just talk about minerals buying in the powder river basin in wyoming it's a unique area and it you know versus buying minerals in texas or other basins in the country can can you talk to the dynamics of it you had mentioned buying overrides there's a lot of fed leases up there kind of the the different dynamics you have to work through when you're looking at fee minerals versus federal minerals yeah i think that would be helpful just to paint the picture Sure. You know, dealing with Fed government's always more complicated. There's more red tape. That means you got to plan further out in advance. You know, I think that's the biggest difference. You know, there may be more overrides than there are minerals in some of the aspects, but hey, if it's all HBP, you know, they're really valued about the same. So there's really an arbitrage value on an override versus a mineral if you're paying less for it. Um, the PRB, you know, Wyoming as a whole, I mean, we love the rock in the state. That's why we we started focusing on it in 2012. You know, there's as I mentioned earlier, Wyoming is in a large part more of a tight sandstone play than a true shale play. Um, although the Niobrara and the Maori and some some other uh, some other shales sitting out there like the Hilliard, they, they may have huge huge upside and will I think for sure. For a non technical person, i.e., a, a financial player that's listening to this, that's looking to invest in minerals, what are the pros and cons of a tight sandstone versus a shale? Is it flatter declines? Is it cheaper wells? You know, can you just expand upon that point? Well, the reservoir is much more predictable, but it's also not, you don't have as wide a spread of development in a basin as you, as you could have with a shale itself. So in the PRB, let's say if there's uh, 2,000 Turner wells that are going to be developed in a tight sandstone, you know, there may be 10,000 Nile wells. So the order of magnitude is different but also the quality of the rock. It all comes down to quality reservoir, right? And uh, tight sandstone is an order of magnitude, higher quality with respect to porosity and permeability, permeability more than porosity as compared to a true shale play. 
you know, and so with that, you get a little more storage, you also get a little more predictability and ability to define the rock and understand what it really is going to do with modern electric log you know, versus many shale plays. Electric logs are good indicators of what the rock could do, and as well as whole core work, which is critical. But uh, at the end of the day, in a true shale play, you know, you got to get out there and you got to test it. In a tight sandstone play, you can model it and you can be mostly right. <laughs> Nothing's for sure in our industry, but sure. uh, you've got a, a lot smaller error bar because the data's better. We understand the rock better. It's more, it's closer to conventional rock. It's, it's in between conventional rock and a true shell play. What about the other factors at play? You know, as a minerals player, you're worried about development timing, what pricing you get. So you can talk about access to, to markets, infrastructure that's in place, you know, discounts that may result in some bottlenecks. How many rigs are running? What's the development activity? The focus on the PRV versus other basins for for operators, you know, are the operators that are up there, are they pure play Powder River Basin players? And so their capital and their focus is figuring that out? Or is it one of many basins, their portfolios that may be left to the wayside with other basins? What are the, the kind of full picture of dynamics there? Going back to how you need to be an EMP company when you're analyzing how to buy? You know, from a technical standpoint, let me take a step back to answer that question. During 2015 and 16, we were in, um, we were working extremely closely with Halliburton, big staff of, of their engineers in our office, and we were looking at doing something fairly large together. And one of the things we did is we broke apart every single shale play and really understood and created lessons learned. And um, it's proprietary. I really can't go into that stuff. But what I can tell you is this, the lessons were very common from one basin to the other. There's just not that much difference between the basins and what you what you have to do to be right and what you uh, try not to do to be, you know, so you're not wrong. And so there's a lot of commonality between these basins and the way that you have to look at them and the way that you develop them, you know. And the bottom line is, is that what is your net realized price at the wellhead? You know, and that means what marketing and distribution and gathering infrastructure that's in place in that basin and what is it going to take to put it in place in the basin and can it be shared by the other operators over there you know and the last thing in the world you want to do is discover a huge oil and gas resource in a place that has no infrastructure and is a far away from a market you know and so the powder river is is placed well for that um just like the dj basin is at this point right you look at plays that were developed a decade or two decades ago like the peons basin where all the infrastructure had to be put in place you look at a lot of the wyoming plays itself where you know until rex and some of these big regional pipelines to get the gas out of here you know, these plays didn't exist, um, or they existed, but they were uneconomic. Well, all this stuff got put in place between 2005 and 2010, just in time for the downturn. And so you had these huge capabilities of transportation and gathering and, and, and marketing infrastructure that was put into place, but it wasn't used. And the peons has never come back. You know, but the shale place took its place and started filling up this infrastructure. But still today, the infrastructure leaving and getting your resources out of Wyoming is still only about 60% full. So you don't run into the bottlenecks that you see in places like uh, West Texas. Now, all that being said, you know, West Texas over the last decade has opened up its infrastructure, built infrastructure. And so it's not seeing those bottlenecks either. And the same goes with the Balkan. So a lot of these basins are, are in the norm right now with respect to level playing field and being able to compete against one another. You know, some have some advantages over others. 
But at the end of the day, the PRB is about 9 million acres. There's only four rigs running in it today. Texas has 154 rigs running just in the Permian Basin. The world is changing, but it hasn't changed that much. Texas is still the place where most oil and gas is going to be found and produced in the United States. About 50% of everything that happens here is going to happen in the state of Texas. It's still the easiest place to do business in the world. And um, there is no uh, silver bullet for the PRB or Texas. You got to know what you're doing. The lessons are all the same. And I think of the new world going forward, you know, you have to be prepared to produce out and don't invest in the management team or in rock that don't have the capability of doing that. I mean, do you, do you think it's a bit of a bubble? Too many rigs? Do you think some of those swing back towards the Powder River Basin, or you just think the overall rig count goes down? And They're mutually exclusive, you know, and they should be. You know, you sh- rigs should be running where, where um, the rock is of high enough quality and, and the management that's operating that rock, you know, can make a profit. And, you know, single well economics still matter. They've always mattered, right? We just forgot that as an industry for a couple decades. And, um, you know, you just can't get away from it. At the end of the day, whether it's a regulatory environment, whether it's the rock, whether it's the competition, whether it's the infrastructure, whether it's all these mom and pop service companies that provide you with fantastic service at a local level, you know, that's what you have in Texas. You don't have that anywhere else or, or to a much lesser extent. You know, Oklahoma's pretty good. You know, you get outside of those two states and, you know, you basically have to bring all your infrastructure with you. So four rigs running, that's not a lot. No, it's not. Yeah, so how, how, how do you guys realize value? Of those four rigs running today, one of them just moved. Two of them, about 50% run on our minerals. And so we're really good at, at rifle shooting where these operators are going to be drilling without getting their drilling schedules. All we have to do is study their behaviors, you know, look at their rock, look at what they're doing. And whether that's in Texas, whether that's in Wyoming, you know, you, you take the same exact approach. If every operator telegraphs their punches, <laughs> you know, and uh, you, know, you know what they're swinging at. All you, all you have to do is take a step back and look. And, and as, as I said, whether you're in Texas or in Mexico, you know, um, or up in the pocket, it's the same. It's the same exact reads. So you had mentioned, let's, let's dive in a little bit more on the business model that you say the industry's forgotten about for a couple of decades. You know, a lot of your peers in the mineral space are younger. They, were, they entered the industry during the shale revolution, so no fault to them. This is, in myself included, right? The world that, that I know, you know, say it's an executive 45 years old or, or younger, is the, the buy and flip model, the you know, the, the type of M&A cycles we've seen, the land grab, so on and so forth. With the industry experience you've had, it's traditionally been, you got to make money. You got you to gotta have margins. You got to pay yourself out of cash flow. And, you know, you think that the, the industry desperately needs to go back to that. And that's the only way to make your return. So can you go into more detail on the produce out strategy? Yeah. First of all, I don't like to make these big blanket statements. There's a lot of oil and gas companies out there that are doing it right. You know, and EOG is a perfect example. They've been working within cash flow since 2012. So if you're a young engineer that came out of a good school and went to work for EOG, you've learned how to develop a field from a green status and produce it out from cradle to grave. That's what that company does. And that's one of the reasons why they've been so successful. And everyone likes to point to EOG. They're easy, right? And their track record speaks for itself. So there's a lot of people out there, big and small, they absolutely know what they're doing and, and can implement a produce out strategy. But there's a lot of people out there also that their business model has been completely 
you know, what, what I call a buy, drill as little as possible and flip strategy, you know, and hopefully you're flipping it to an outlier that needs to make an acquisition. You know, and there's been a lot of people that made a ton of money paying way too much when they got in, drilling way too few wells to prove anything up and still flipping that asset for a tremendous amount of, of profit. They didn't create any value. You know, they just took somebody for a ride. And so you talk about a produce out strategy in simplest terms, you know, I define it as the ability to develop your asset out of cash flow once the initial investment's been made. And investment means your acquisition price as well as the working capital it takes to get you to a cash flow position. And then be able to take that and deliver a return on investment, you know, at the stock tanks and the sales meter, you know, rather than flipping it, you know, to this outlying buyer. You know, the keys to success, you know, it's the recurring theme of our whole discussion, only invest in the best rock, you know, and that rock is defined as rock that you can deliver a full cycle break even, you know, at less than $40 a barrel. And when I say break even, I mean delivering a 20% internal rate return, you know, at a $40 barrel oil price. And to me, that's break even. That's your cost of capital. We're all in this game to try to deliver a 20% internal rate return to our shareholders. In order to do that and, and, and deliver that return to your shareholders, you got to pay a purchase price, you know, that enables the modest use, you know, and put together a, you know, capital commitment with respect to what's going in the ground and use a very modest use of debt. And when I say modest, you know, something about a one to 1.5 debt to EBITDA ratio. In order to make this all work on a produce out basis, you know, you've got to start distributions within 36 months to your investors. That doesn't mean 100% of your cash flow goes to them, your free cash flow. You still have to keep reinvesting and developing the field, but you got to start to live in that 7 to 8% as a distribution within 36 months. And you got to get all the capital back, the initial capital that they invested, you got to get that back in their hands in less than seven years. You know, and at the end of the day, as a management team, you have to deliver these results with really very lean overhead. And to me, lean overhead is delivering... Uh, you know, your GNA on a per barrel basis is, is less than two bucks. Right. You know, what I just described is completely agnostic to a working interest or a royalty interest investment. They're, it's exactly the same. Obviously, you don't need a GNA at less than two dollars, you know, at around two dollars a barrel. OK, but you need to invest under management teams who have that. And so the same rules apply. It's just you looking at, you know, not only the rock that you're investing in, but that company, that management team you know, and how that rock within that company's portfolio will compete for capital, you know, and if it's a private equity backed company, you know, any company's balance sheet, you know, if it's public, it's easy to, it's very transparent, but if it's private equity, you know, that their financials are not that transparent. So that means that you have to really take a deep, deep dive into the private equity company, you know, or group that actually backs them. What are their characteristics? How do they handle stressful times in the industry? You know, what do they typically do? How are you competing for capital within that private equity company's portfolio, not just for that management team? So it actually puts forward a whole nother layer of risk that you have to understand. And that means you have to understand the private equity model and the different companies, the different private equity companies out there competing for management teams and assets. They all contribute to the success or the failure of an investment, whether it's in minerals, non-cost bearing. I find that kind of ridiculous since you're paying a lot of money right up front for it and hoping that everything goes well. Seems to me that that's a little more risky. You can't cut your loss and leave. You've paid it all on the front end. Well, it's the way that we look at the business. You know, how do you get oil and gas out of the ground and make money doing it? 
of a mineral as a mineral investor or whether you're at the tail end on a midstream. Same thing goes for a midstream company. You put infrastructure in place, you better hope they're doing it for an investor that knows what they're doing and developing good rock. And you just can't close your eyes and say, well, it doesn't matter, I'm a midstreamer. A lot of midstreamers are going to go belly up too. There's going to be a lot of carnage, bankruptcies, right? In the upstream space, the midstream space, the service space. Let's talk about the opportunities you see in a COVID-19 world. You had talked about ramping up the mineral strategy a couple of years ago because you saw there's an opportunity to buy at good value. Do you see that today? On some basis. What I see today is a is the opportunity to buy a good value in many more basins and that are going to be closer to the drill bit. And what I mean by that is, is that, you know, the best rock as we come out of this uh, post COVID-19 environment or landscape, whatever that looks like, and I don't think anybody really knows, we do know everything's going to change and what it actually looks like, we're really not sure. But we do know that if we learn our lessons, as an industry, or at least some of the lessons as an industry, you know, the best rock is going to get developed first underneath the best operators that never were in financial trouble. If you're a mineral buyer, you better focus on those operators in that rock. You know, even EOG has a ton of rock out there that you don't want to develop or invest under. So just by saying, oh, I'm under EOG doesn't mean that that's a sure path to success. It doesn't. Poor rock isn't worth owning at any cost. So getting out there and just being able to buy something at 10% of what it was worth, you know, two years ago is not a very good model. You know, and I mentioned several times during our discussions that only about 15 to 20% of the rock actually is economic at 50 to $60 oil. Our industries will completely restructure. And since it wasn't done, hopefully we do it correctly this time. It wasn't done right in 2014 or 15. And And, you know, basically back then, much of our industry was in ICU and those companies were restructured just enough to get them out of intensive care and move to recovery work. But, you know, we're never really given the chance to get healthy again. And it was inevitable that they were going to go right back in ICU. And COVID-19 just accelerated the process by pulling a cord on the PDP life support machine that they were living off of. In my opinion, the oil price war was all just saber rattling. You know, Russia was always going to be the big loser, you know, from the beginning. Um, Without COVID-19 destroying world demand, it would have really just been a speed bump. You know, that being said, everyone's saying that the U.S. lost the oil price war. I think that's ridiculous. The innovation and resiliency of the U.S. independent woman and woman would ultimately have come out on top again. And, and I think that's going to happen over the next two to three years. But it's going to take that long to restructure the industry and get moving. The restructuring, whether it's 60% or 80% of the companies that are going to be insolvent are going to have to shed assets. They're going to have to shed good assets. And there is not a lot of liquidity out there. There's not a lot of dry powder. So that means if you're patient and you've got that dry powder, then you can sit and you can actually buy rock, good rock. At a, at a reasonable price. You know, and the definition of a reasonable price is one that you can pay and deliver a 20% internal rate of return to your shareholders through, you know, an organic growth, you know, i.e. produce out strategy. Why do you think Russia was always going to be the big loser from the beginning? I, when I spoke to Darren Geiger over at Cornerstone, you know, he had mentioned a lot of the legacy production that was going to need to be shut in. That's thousands of miles away from the cities that are consuming 
you know, the energy. Siberia. Yeah. And he said that stuff doesn't, the economics don't work. You don't bring that back online. And so is that some of the stuff you're, you're alluding to? I mean, labor's free, you know, you get back online and you have no environmental constraints and you have no issues like that. So take it from somebody that's um, developed a field himself in Russia. The Russians will make things happen. You know, and you're talking about a distribution system that is antiquated and that is rift with corruption. And so although their economic, let's just call it their fiscal petroleum model, any one price point is, is really low cost. There's so many of those price points. There's so many people that have to touch a barrel of oil before it gets to Novorissics and the Black Sea and into the international market that the cost becomes very, very high. And you're looking at a break-even cost you know, of Russia, somewhere between $65 and $75 a barrel. Really? And and you look at Saudi Arabia. Okay, so Saudi's got a total, you know, delivery cost of, of eight bucks. But if you put Aramco's G&A on top of it, they're at an $80 break-even price. Well, what do you mean, Aramco's G&A? Well, Aramco actually funds the entire government. So the entire government basically is the executive team, is the C-suite. And when you take all those costs into effect, these guys have about an $80 break-even point. So the U.S. industry, you know, we're sitting, our average rock that's being produced, you know, that top 15 to 20% is, is in that $30 to $40 mark, some of it a little bit less. You know, the other 80%, you know, is between 50 and 150 to be honest with you. And if you look at our average price point, it's probably in that 65 to $70 range, you know, from a break-even perspective. So we actually, you know, and I'm talking about all the bad rock being drilled that should have never been drilled. Our price point, you know, is still 15 or 20% less than, than either Saudi or Russia. Do you think the global distribution of supply on where it sits now from a you know, geographical standpoint is somewhat accurate? Well, I think what we've seen over the last several decades is that, you know, the free market has controlled the price, you know, and the only thing that's changed that price is supply, you know, and primarily oversupply, i.e. us in the U.S. producing bad rock, making uneconomic investments because of the buy and flip model. The buy and flip model goes away, you know, and you're looking at an average price point of 60 to 70 dollars if you get rid of the buy and flip model now the question is is will you get rid of it and the answer is no you won't because of greed and people believing that they can flip something for far more than it's actually worth that's what they believe at the end of the day and you can you can characterize it any way you want but that's what's going on what happened to the poor investments that have been made over the last five years in minerals that were mirroring the, the mistakes made in the upstream space. We're starting to see the carnage on the bankruptcy side in the upstream space. If and when, is that same carnage going to happen in minerals? Has it happened already? What, what kind of opportunities does that present? I mean, it's already happened. The, the mineral owners may not understand that it's happened yet, but it's already happened. You know, what's happening on the EMP side is, is just a, it's a movie that you're watching and you think you're in the audience, but you're not. You're right in the middle of it. You're organizing deck chairs on the Titanic if you're a mineral owner and don't think you're actually going down with shit. You're going to have the same fate as the operator that you invested underneath of, you know, and you can't walk away from that. You know, there's public mineral companies out there that have billions of dollars invested 
in a portfolio that only 30% is held by production. That's an ugly picture. What what happens to that capital? It just it's destroyed. You know, is there an exit for it, and you, you know no. firms can buy it at cheap, or these are just there's always a greater there's always a greater fool. But if it's quality rock, it'll always still command a price. And as I said, the quality rock that's underneath of good operators that are going to take advantage. This is one of the most exciting times in the history of the energy industry. You know, there's more opportunity that's going to come to play or or be put out there on the table for someone to grab over the next 10 years than than we've probably seen in any decade in the industry itself. You know, and the companies that have um, liquidity have that dry powder. They're going to set the rules and they're going to they're going to be the ones that are, are going to benefit from it. You know, and so minerals that sit under those operators will always trade at a premium. You know, and the rest of the minerals, you better pay a low enough price that an operator can step in in five years and then develop them. And you're still going to get the return you're looking for. One thing that's interesting, I want to throw a question out there. A lot of folks, and I'm sure you fall in this bucket, like to buy organically. There's, they, they see a better value creation through buying direct from the mineral owner. Others like to buy packages. It's just a, you know, a matter of scale and putting money to work. When you look at bankruptcies and the mineral portfolios that sit within EMP companies, let's assume this is good rock because that's the recurring theme you're talking about. So let's just say there's a minerals portfolio. It sits under good rock and an EMP company that got in a bad way and over levered. Now they're going to go through a, a pre-packaged bankruptcy or through a full bankruptcy process. What, what happens to those minerals? Uh, I know a lot of companies separate them out into, into drop-down entities. Do you think one of the, some of the great buying opportunities out of this whole process is through buying minerals from the distressed EMP companies? Thoughts on that? It's exactly the same approach that if, if COVID never happened and the industry just kept trucking along the way it was, it's exactly the same approach you're taking now in the downturn as you would then. You know, and it's everything we just talked about. You know, for example, you, you said it's great rock, so we don't have to worry about that. You know, but it's worthless unless those minerals actually hit a stock tank and, and that oil and gas companies pay for them. So what's the probability and in what time frame that they're actually going to hit that stock tank? And so that's what you have to understand. So now you're saying, okay, now I not only have to understand the actual development process of these minerals, but now I also have to understand the bankruptcy process and I have to predict what this company is going to look like coming out of it. And if this company is restructured improperly, you know, it's in ICU, but if it's only restructured to put it onto a ward, a recovery room, but in two or three years, it's going to go right back into ICU again, then why in the hell would I want to invest in those minerals? So the picture is even more complicated now. You not only have to understand what it's going to take to develop those minerals and the cost and whether or not they're going to be economically attractive, but now you have to predict what's going to happen through the bankruptcy process. This management team that put this company in the bankruptcy, you know, are they going to be the ones that are still running it after it comes out of bankruptcy? And if they are, you got to take a step back and say, do you think they really learned anything? Now, in the past, historically, you can say on average, no, they didn't. And if they did, they wouldn't have allowed their companies to come out in as poor, come out of bankruptcy in 14 and 15, as poorly financially restructured as they were. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point. I mean, again, you said it it adds to another layer of the complexity. That's a challenging one, right? You're trying to predict the future and how things are going to unfold. There's always a low enough price 
that you're willing to take that risk. You just have to understand what the, the risks truly are and, um, and make your decisions based on that. Me personally, I, I would much rather pay a fair price for good rock under a good operator that's got a good plan and has prioritized that rock to develop it as soon as practical. I'd much rather invest my money there and get that 20% internal rate of return than take the risk of, or trying to get a 10X by picking up good rock on the cheap but have no way or understanding of whether or not that is ever gonna come to fruition in the next 10 years. I lose sleep at night worrying about I bought some great rock. I like the company that's developing it. They've done a good job so far, but they end up flipping it to an operator that becomes a lame duck, is a lame duck, and they're sitting on my HBP minerals for the next decade. Great investment, but they drive the value to zero for me, the present value. You know, and if a mineral buyer doesn't understand that, hopefully they're flipping very, very quickly where they're not taking that timing risk with respect to companies, managements, and the industry's performance as a whole. Do you think, you know, going forward, so let's just assume, you know, the the movie continues to play out. There are some investors that lose money in minerals. Do you think there'll be a continued interest in the space or it cools down? The era of it being the the new shiny object uh, to invest in, does that wear off a bit? Or do you just think investors get a little more sophisticated? I mean, there are a lot of companies who have built a couple hundred million dollar portfolios that are saying to me, I have the conversations every day, Tim, there needs to be more end buyers. We need to bring more pensions in, more foundations, more family offices to buy direct. It's a great asset class. Those are the same companies that only have 30% of their minerals being uh, under production. And, and much of what they own will never get produced because it's in bad rock because they bought these big packages. And so what, what does it really mean at the end of the day? They're promoting the same type of mistakes that was made in the upstream industry. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. So the one thing that's interesting, minerals are a much longer tailed investment. The type of capital that typically would be an end buyer of are going to be cheaper cost of capital. They're looking to hold it 15 20 plus years or in perpetuity, you know, in the upstream space, it's typically shorter life cycles. When I spoke to Adam Watchers and did an episode with him recently, he was saying you, you could see the writing on the wall and it took five years for everyone to understand the capital markets that everyone was losing money. Do you think there's a longer lag and there's people who are being quote unquote fooled and then the, the carnage is stretched out? I'll push back on a lot of those statements. It didn't take anybody five years. You know, it took five years because maybe for the average person that uh, was not educated in the industry to understand what was really happening. But those, whether it's private equity companies, whether it's investment bankers, whether it's these management teams, whether it was the, the poor reservoir engineer that was telling them, you can't put these EURs in these wells. We have no idea it's actually going to produce this. You can't put wells this close together. It doesn't make any sense in the world. You know, yet it was done. We knew 
as an industry a long, long, long time ago of, of what was right and what was wrong. And we just ignored it, you know, because as an industry, we jumped on this hamster wheel and had no way off of it. And people were making a lot of money along the way. Which is why I was ignored, right? It's easy. Which to- is why I was ignored. But we all, the, the people that, that were experts in the industry knew better. They knew exactly what was going on. And if they tell you anything different, I would, um, you know, wave a red flag. There's no difference whether you're investing a dollar in the minerals or investing in an upstream EMP company. There, there's no difference in the time frame or the cost of capital. You've got investment funds that have this long-term perspective that have a very, very low cost of capital. They're trying to get that six to seven percent return, you know, so they never have to dive into their into their principal and they could be paying those teachers' pensions long into the future forever. There's no difference between those guys investing in a private equity firm that's taking a little bit higher risk and them investing directly into a lower risk asset, whether it's a publicly traded company or a mineral company. If they, if they understand it's even lower risk, which I don't believe it is, it's the same value stream. So how is the risk different? And how is the cost of capital that should be applied to it different? I, I don't understand that. Well, I, I will say that's some of the messaging you hear, right? And so that kind of plays into your overlying theme of just doing it again and dressing it up differently. Uh, and it's a you shame. Know, people said that, hey, great place to put your cash, you know, low risk. And when I'm talking about the MLPs, like Lynn Energy, we're attractive to a, a less risky class of capital, lower, you know, we're, we're putting out these dividends. It's perfect for these long-term distributions. It's perfect for, you know, these teachers unions or, or uh, endowments, et cetera, et cetera. How did that turn out? Or savings and loans, you know, in the early 80s. Or for that matter, the mortgage derivatives in 2008 and nine. It's because people didn't understand what the true underlying risks are. And I'm telling you that if the value of a mineral royalty or a working interest in that same raw, it's the same root value. Can you get the minerals out of the ground? And what did you pay for it to get the mineral, to receive the, the benefits of, of that oil hitting the stock tank? It's exactly the same risk at the end of the day. Are the minerals produced? That seems like it's pretty simple economics. Absolutely. Listen, I appreciate you, you spelling all this out. We we hit a variety of things, a variety of positive and also somewhat sobering points. As we wrap up the episode, Chris, can can we maybe summarize some closing messages to your industry peers, to the investment community to, to take it away? Sure. I said earlier, you know, I think this is probably the most exciting time in the history of the industry. That old Chinese proverb, may you live in exciting times. And this is certainly one. And that means that there's going to be an enormous amount of value that can be created by competent people and smart money over the next decade. I think it's critical that we let Adam Smith's free hand of the market do its work. We do not need our industry to be regulated by the Fed or by a state government any more than it actually is right now, especially with respect to curbing back production. The the laws of supply and demand are doing that right before our eyes. You know, example, the lack of storage in the U.S. alone will shut in more wells faster than any amount of regulation. As an industry, we should focus on actually learning from our mistakes. One of the mistakes was inefficiently investing in bad rock. Another mistake, you know, ignoring single well economics. If you do that, you will fail. And the third is believing that a buy and flip model actually creates value in long term. 
It doesn't. Uh, you want a sustainable oil industry? You want to maintain oil independence? Then we need to be focused as an industry on that produce out model. So my advice is go read Atlas Shrugged before you decide to testify in front of the Texas Railroad Commission. We certainly <laughs> need to follow that road of communism because we know that doesn't work. No, listen, Chris, this has been this has been really enjoyable. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. I know when I asked you to do this, you were really keen on talking about some of the tougher things that need to be addressed and not just painting this big positive brush that did a lot do. So you're you're leveraging your experience and going back to basics in many ways and and I just appreciate you sharing everything. It's it's been great. Well, I enjoyed it. And, you know, I'm not doom and gloom here. I'm the opposite. I'm the uh, ultimate optimist, you know, and I uh, truly believe in our industry and I've had a blast my entire career and I'm, they'll put me in the grave before I retire. Sounds good. Well, Chris, looking forward to seeing you again soon as the world returns to normal and we can fly and travel and have meetings and dinners. We'll, we'll see you soon enough. But uh, in the interim, best of luck with everything. Stay healthy and safe and, and we'll, we'll talk soon. Thank you, Tim. Thanks a lot. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Oil & Gas Council represents the largest network of senior oil & gas executives and investors in the world. Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our royalties clients in order to help them place capital, buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you're interested in learning more about how we can help your team by connecting you with executives like Chris, then please email me at Tim. Powell, that's P-A-W-U-L, at oilcouncil.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share the episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks, and see you next time.